from the Subaru of Gwinnett Studio in the Senesta Gwinnett Place Atlanta Hotel. It's time for Senior Salute Radio. Senior Salute Radio is presented by the Estate and Asset Protection Law Firm of Victoria Collier. And hello again, everybody. And as you just heard, welcome to Senior Salute Radio, brought to you by the Estate and Asset Protection Law Firm of Victoria Collier. Mike Salmon here with you alongside Victoria Collier. And Senior Salute Radio brings timely information to leading age boomers and seniors addressing the issues of aging, caregiving, and maintaining quality of life. And on today's show, we're going to discuss a special type of estate planning, commonly referred to as special needs planning. First of all, hello there, Victoria. Hey, Mike. Let's talk about special needs planning. What do we mean when we say special needs? Sure. We have talked before about different types of estate planning, and this is a very specialized niche in estate planning called special needs planning. And where it's different than all other kinds of estate planning is it has to do specifically with planning for a person who has disabilities. Um, Meaning that there is a certain way that if you are disabled or if someone that you love is disabled comes into money or that you want to leave them money either like at your death or something like that, the language and the documentation that is required is very different than traditional estate planning. All right. Is special needs planning the same for everyone? No. um, Just like every person who has a disability does not have the same kind of disability. Right. Um, We've got young children. We have adults with disabilities. We have people who were born with disabilities. We have some who have acquired them over their lifetime in various different ways. Um, So the planning is different depending on, number one, their age, number two, whose money is it that we're planning with, and are we going to plan for that during the disabled person's lifetime, or during the person who is giving the money to the disabled person during life, or after their death. So many factors come into play um, so that the planning definitely is not the same for everyone. I would think, Victoria, when you're working with people that and, and, and special needs planning, that in some cases you're working with that actual individual that has the disability, and in some cases you may be working with really the family because the disabled person is unable to really comprehend, perhaps? Well, most commonly you are working with the family okay. in some way, Um, And only recently, um, and when I say recently, I mean in the past couple years, the law changed to where people who have disabilities can actually engage in doing their own planning without court involvement or without a family member um, to be able to initiate that planning. But prior to a couple years ago, you always had to work with the family or the court system. Um, and now it's a combination. Give us a broad over, uh, overview, if you will, then of the types of special, plan, special needs planning that's out right. there. So there's two overall broad types of special needs planning. And one is what's called first party special needs planning. First party means that I am the one with disabilities. 
I am the one who has money and I am the one who wants to protect that money and still get access to possibly supplemental security income called SSI or uh, Medicaid. And when I get SSI, I automatically would qualify for Medicaid, uh, but for sometimes the assets. So first party is it's the disabled person's money that we are planning with. Then there's the second type of special needs planning called third-party planning. That means there's a third person, not the person with disabilities. So, for example, a parent, a spouse, a grandparent, a sibling, they have money. And they want to use their money to help benefit the person with disabilities. But they want to do it in such a way that the person with disabilities does not lose any opportunity for SSI, Medicaid, or other government benefits. And under the third party planning, there's actually two different ways to plan depending on very particular factors, but one is called supplemental needs trusts, and the other one is called a sole benefit trust. And to the regular community, um, it's complicated um, as to when you would need one or the other of those and in fact quite candidly to lawyers who don't specialize in this area um, they don't know the difference between supplemental needs trust and sole benefit trust which if you use the wrong one it's malpractice let me ask a quick question before we move forward and that is in, in a previous show we talked about the four different types of estate planning out there for a person with a disability is there why do we need the special needs type of planning? Why can't they use one of the ones that is already out there and established? Well, Mike, for people who are disabled, um, they often will use some of the same types of the four common estate planning types. A person with disabilities will still have a will that says, when I die, this is where I want my stuff to go, right? But if this person needs their own access to government assistance while they're alive, if they're under the age of 65, there's a way to protect their own money and still get access to that medical care through Medicaid and SSI. And so a will is not going to do that for them because a will is only effective when they die. A revocable trust is not going to do that for them because that only helps you bypass probate. And if we use the traditional asset protection trust, like we talked about in the four types of estate planning, then they would have to wait at least five years to get benefits. And people we're talking about today, they have disabilities today, they have high medical costs today, and they need help today. And so we can't wait five years. And so we would need to use the actual federal laws that are customized just to this category of planning, which are for people who are 65 years and under who have disabilities, that if they have their own money, they can protect that and still get access to medical care. One very common example of that are people who have workplace injuries or um, lawsuit settlements like um, medical malpractice maybe um, and so they've come into a lot of money they can't work anymore and they're going to have a lot of needs let's say that they you know let's just say you had 
somebody who fell off of a ladder and now they are paralyzed from the neck down and need 24-7 care of others. And it was found that that ladder was dysfunctional and they sued the company and got lots of money, okay? Mm -hmm. And this is a 45-year-old person, right? And so let's say they got, you know, a million dollars. Yet 24-7 care is like $12,000 a month. You know, you go through that million dollars very quickly. Um, and so are there programs out there that if you qualified, for example, for Medicaid, you could get assistance with that? Yes, there are, except that you have to meet asset requirements. And so special needs planning through the federal laws allows them to do that in a way that they can both protect their resources and get the government assistance. We're talking with Victoria Collier, and this is Senior Salute Radio here on Business Radio X, brought to you by the estate and asset protection law firm of Victoria Collier. So let's talk about some of the benefits of special needs planning and, and maybe give us some examples and some, some scenarios of, of what it would look like. So there I just gave you an example of a first-party special needs trust after a lawsuit, okay? Um, but the clients that we meet with most often are parents who are aging, who have adult disabled children who they've been taking care of um, their whole lives and the parents are recognizing that I might die someday you know and who's going to take care of my adult disabled child um, and how can I protect my assets in order to make that uh, them last so that my child doesn't have to compromise their living arrangements or their quality of life or their standard of living based on what we've been providing. And so that's an example of where we would do planning with the parents to protect that child. Um, that's very common for people who have children um, either with um, Down syndrome, with schizophrenia and bipolar, actually, um, which are two unpredictable um, types of need in the future as well. Um, people who have severe depression. Um, I mean, the list just goes on and on. <clears throat> so um, what we, and what that would be is either if, if the parent, for example, just wanted to leave money for that child upon the parent's death, they could do that through their traditional estate planning tools like a will that has that special needs trust inside the will, mm -hmm. okay? So it's special language we would add to their normal document. Or even their revocable living trust could have special needs language in it, right? What you don't want to do is just give it to the child outright, okay? Um, but if the parent said, for example, well, I want to go ahead and make sure that they have some money now before I die, and we have other relatives who might want to leave money to that child, when they die or otherwise. So we wanna go ahead and set up something now. I don't wanna wait till I die. And so that would be the third party special needs trust uh, where we go ahead and create it now, fund it with some money now, and then anybody who wants to leave money to this person can do it through that one trust, which is a great uh, vehicle so that people don't accidentally leave them money and then they lose everything that you know, they've worked hard to get mm -hmm. based on their disability. Um, so that's another uh, type as well. Now, the, that's the third-party special needs trust. I did mention another term called sole benefit trust. A sole benefit trust essentially comes into play, 
and not as often as the other two. But it comes into play when, for example, I've had a grandparent going into a nursing home. And that grandparent had, let's say, $60,000, okay? And that grandparent would like to be on Medicaid in the nursing home to get Medicaid for themselves to help offset the cost of the nursing home. And instead of spending all the $60,000 down and then applying for Medicaid, she says, is there a way for me to preserve this $60,000 and still get Medicaid and so, for myself? And so the answer could be, and one of the first questions is, do you have any children or grandchildren with disabilities? And in this case, the grandmother says, well, I do have a grandson with disabilities, and he's getting SSI, Supplemental Security Income. He's on Medicaid himself. Then we can say, yes, we can take your extra 60000 We can put it into what's called a sole benefit trust. You can get your Medicaid. He keeps his Medicaid. But when y'all die, if there's anything left in the trust, it gets paid back. It gets paid back to the state of Georgia or whatever state the person's on Medicaid, and so it can only benefit. That's why it's called sole benefit. It can only benefit that person who is the beneficiary of that trust. It cannot benefit anybody else, and that's the distinguishing factor. For example, from a third-party special needs trust or also called supplemental needs trust, is let's say I'm the parent. I set up that trust I just talked about a second ago. Um, now we fund some money to it, other people put money in it. That can benefit the disabled person while the disabled person's alive. But when that disabled person dies, my trust that I've created can go to anybody I want it to go to. And so it, it's not just for that person, it can go to anybody. Um, and that's where the malpractice comes in. That's one of the areas where the malpractice comes in, is not knowing the difference between when you have to pay the state back and when you don't. A lot of information and a lot of folks may think they know know it all but it seems like you never know it all because the laws do change you mentioned a law changing just a few years ago so all the more reason to maybe have a consultation or a meeting with uh, victoria collier or anybody with her staff let's talk as we continue the conversation about special needs planning let's talk about some examples where people were messed up because they did the planning but there were some mistakes made or they just failed to plan altogether sure mike and i'll tell you the thing that i see most often which is frustrating to me as a lawyer it's frustrating to my clients um, who have done what they think is good planning Mm -hmm. based on the advice of lawyers who do not specialize in elder law do not specialize in special needs planning um, and sometimes don't even specialize in estate planning Um, but they come to us with a trust in place already and they think everything's okay and 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 so let's talk about like a a a, a trust where i'm the parent and i'm leaving money to my child with disabilities and that can be through my will like i told you before so now i've died all my money goes into this trust for my child and my child, I know, is on SSI. You know, I know they're on Medicaid. I know that they need to be protected, which is why I did the trust to begin with, right? But the trust has all the wrong language in it. Um, for Medicaid purposes, it has to be very specific language. And why it's so confusing is the language, the bad language, actually sounds good. Um, in fact, it says, 
I am saving this money for my child for their health, education, support, and maintenance. Doesn't everyone, every parent want to provide for their child's health, education, support, and maintenance if, in fact, they're dependent on them? Absolutely. So as a consumer, you're like, well, of course I do. That's, that's what I need. The Medicaid law says absolutely not. If you leave it in that way, then all of it counts against you and you lose your Medicaid until all of that is spent down, which is the absolute opposite of what the purpose of the planning was. Um, in addition to that, or I should say a small variation of that, is people will create what's called an irrevocable trust. And so I will create an irrevocable trust for myself. I'll put my own money in there. And five years from now, you know, after the Medicaid look back, for example, I think everything's been protected because it's an irrevocable trust. Except that I'm the beneficiary of the trust. And it has language saying that they can dip into, my trustee can dip into the trust for my health, education, maintenance, and support. And once that language is in there, it doesn't matter if it's irrevocable. All irrevocable means is I can't change it. And that's unfortunate because if I could change it, mm -hmm. I would change the language immediately, right? And as you can see, that can be quite frustrating for people who feel they've done planning, they've paid price for that, and now they're coming to someone else saying that's all wrong and I'm actually gonna charge you more than what they charged you. Um, what, and they what don't the, get it. What's the type of verbiage that should be in there then? Well, it's very specific language that follows the federal laws and the state laws with regard to special needs. So um, there's lots of paragraphs. You know, I mean, it's page after page. I, I wouldn't be able to right, <laughs> tell you, you specifically. Um, I, I mean, I would if, you know. <laughs> why is it, and I'm sure this is a question everybody's going to ask, why is it so complicated? Because it's federal laws that states govern and so now you have a blend of laws and it's a carve out in the law it's an exception to the normal rules and so when you have exceptions to the normal rules then um you know you've got what well, congress making the rules you yeah. know anything that congress is involved <laughs> with is, is yes. confusing so and it doesn't matter you know what your intent is the words it has to be legally everything has to be the T's crossed, the I's dotted. Absolutely. And you still have to be flexible enough to when the laws change in the future that you can still go back and change that to conform to future laws as well, um, because that happens. And not just drafting of the trust, but this kind of law, Mike, you actually have to get permission, approval of the trust before you can execute it. You have to get permission from the state you have to get permission from the federal government, Social Security, before you can approve it. That's how very particular these things are. After the discussions we've had on this show and previous shows about estate planning and trusts and things like that, I guess there's still a lot of people out there that try to do it themselves. Well, they do, and they have good intentions. Um, special needs, I would have to say, is one of those areas where either people don't do it at all, or they do actually seek advisors. Whether the advisors are good or not is another story, but there's communities of parents with adult children with disabilities and they talk to each other. So, so they either don't do it or they do try to find an advisor. Many of them do not try to do it on their own. Um, what they do on their own is informal 
planning, which is, for example, I had a client in my office just a week and a half ago, and it's a married couple. They have an adult disabled child, and he is high-functioning, but yet will never be able to hold down a consistent job. Um, They have not applied for Social Security disability or anything like that yet, Um, but... The parents have been giving him, you know, $15,000 a year every year under the tax code that's not even relevant to them. Um, and they also started for, you know, some sort of retirement fund for him. And he has approximately $250,000 in his own name, which they could have been funding a special a third party special needs trust for him so when they came to me and i said look as soon as you apply for social security disability and he's granted you know all that money's protected and he can still get access to medicare and medicaid you know when the time is is right but now we've got all this money and now his options are so they asked well what can we do <laughs> and so the options are limited number one well he's under 65 so he can do his own trust but when he dies, if there's anything left in that, it gets paid to the state of Georgia. Whereas if you set up the trust, it would not have been paid to the state of Georgia. So that's one option. The other option is, well, he can do a traditional irrevocable asset protection trust, one of those four types of planning we talked about, and just not get any benefits for five years. And that may be okay based on his current situation, but that throws him into regular planning, not special needs trust planning. Um, or he can just not get the benefits you know that's always an option mm-hmm. not get the benefits right can the parents take the money back um you know not without uh, not without jumping through some hoops not without lots of hoops okay. and and really once they gave it to him it's his to do whatever he wants to with it and so if he gives it back that's from the state's perspective he now made a gift to them I got you. And that's penalized in the Medicaid world. Um, Any other examples of either planning gone bad or no planning at all? You know, Mike, I could keep you here um, (laughs) days and days and days. But um, I would say that ultimately, you know, it's, you know, the top three are no planning, using the wrong kind of language in the trust or giving people money um, directly who who either are on benefits or could use the benefits in the future. Um, instead of putting it into a trust to begin with. And I guess there is another category that comes up, and that is, and that's not just special needs, although it really negatively affects special needs, and that's people who use what's called the Uniform Transfers to Minor Act accounts or custodial accounts at banks, uh, where when their child is under the age of 18, they're funding these bank accounts and they are the custodian but when the child in the state of georgia turns 21 it's that child's account and you might have started this fund when you were four when they were four years old five years old they didn't have any disabilities but maybe they developed one um but at 21 it's theirs and so that would knock them off of benefits um i am not a huge fan of custodial accounts for minors i think trusts are better and that's an account that was sold to them it sounds like by a banker absolutely not a an attorney or somebody that would really know well and what happens is someone comes in and says well i want to start putting money aside to my for my grandkids um you know to help them and so the bank says well we've got this you know minors account and doesn't ask any other questions um and 
Um, and minors accounts, I can tell you whether you have special needs or you don't have special needs, they present problems. Um, I had one client whose grandparent was doing that for three grandkids. By the time the first grandkid was turning 18, they all had over $300,000 in their accounts. And the parents came and they're like, oh my gosh, do we have to give this to the son? <laughs> and I said, well, by the time your son is 21, absolutely. Unless your son, who's now 18, want the first one, they freaked out at the first one. Um, your son, now that he's 18, he can make his own decisions. We can discuss with him the benefits of taking it from this account and putting it into a trust where you manage it if you're the better money manager than him at 18. Um, and he can either agree that that's a good idea or he can say, hand me, I'm going to the bank. You know, Many of these kids don't even know they have the money. And so having that conversation from the beginning can be difficult. Um, you know, it's either yay, surprise, or yes, I don't have the maturity to manage that. Please keep doing it for me. That alone takes maturity. Um, but those are the options uh, with, you know, the minor accounts. The better option, especially when you have special needs, is set up a special needs trust account. If you don't have special needs and you have minors and you want to leave things to them, use traditional estate planning tools. Use trusts. Well, Victoria, on previous shows, we have harped about the importance of estate planning, estate planning, estate planning, estate planning. And as we've talked about on this episode, when it comes to special needs planning, you, know, you can lead a horse to water, you can't make it drink. But in this case, if you have a special needs family member or whatever, you really, really, really need to drink the water. You need to do this. Absolutely. Um, you know, they say love is all you need. Love is not all you need. <laughs> you need planning when you love someone with disabilities. For those that would like to look into some planning now and they want to reach out to you, what's the best way to do that? Well, our phone number is 470-235-7848. That's 470-235-7848. And our website is www.elderlawgeorgia.com. That's elderlawgeorgia.com with Georgia spelled out. And special needs planning really is a subset of elder care planning. Absolutely. Well, we want to remind everybody that you're listening to Senior Salute Radio. It's a bi-monthly show bringing you timely information for leading age boomers. And it's available 24-7 online by visiting businessradiox.com, then select the Gwinnett Studio, and then click on Senior Salute. want to thank uh, Victoria. want to thank our producer, Trey, as well. Uh, and uh, I'm Mike Salmon. And, Victoria, I'll let you take it away. Thank you, Mike. I would like to thank our listeners. We salute you. Thank you.